Welcome to episode 89. Today on the show, I have an interview with Courtney Carver from Be More With Less. Although I spend a lot of time on the blog and on the podcast talking about how to live simply and how to minimize, Courtney and I focus more on the why today. You are listening to the Simple Families Podcast, a Q&A style show that brings you solutions for living well with family. Here's your host, Danae Barahona. Hi, it's Danae. Today on the show, I'm so excited to have Courtney Carver from Be More With Less. Courtney just launched her brand new book, Soulful Simplicity. Soulful Simplicity is really focused on the why. Why is simple living and why is minimalism such a wonderful thing for ourselves, for our hearts, and for our families? In this episode, we talk more about letting go of sentimental things and how our relationships change and how our lives change when we declutter our houses, our schedules, and our lives. Courtney has been a leading voice in the minimalism movement, and her Project 333 that she runs on Be More With Less really paved the way for the capsule wardrobe phenomenon. So while I have no doubt that she has amazing advice on how to slim down on your wardrobe, how to slim down on your belongings, she offers this and so much more in her book. A quick side note, unfortunately, while we were recording, my mic decided to act up and start giving me some audio problems. So you might notice that my audio is a little fuzzy, but Courtney sounds great. So I hope you can bear with us. There's a lot of great content here. Enjoy the show. Hi, Courtney. Thanks so much for your time this morning. I'm so excited to have you here on the podcast. Of course. I'm excited to be here as well. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. So if you're not familiar with Courtney, um, I might be a little bit surprised because Courtney has been such a, a wonderful voice in the simple living and minimalism community for several years. Courtney runs the blog Be More With Less. And Courtney, that started in 2010. Is that right? It did. Yeah. May of 2010. Wow. So this has probably been quite a journey for you, especially being able to document it throughout the years. It has been really interesting. And I mean, I rarely go back and, and see what I documented, but it surfaces from time to time. And I think, oh, yeah, it has been a full seven years. Absolutely. So your book that you just came out with, and this just launched on the 26th of December, and I just finished it yesterday. My husband and I actually listened to most of it on our drive back. We were traveling from the holidays. We had a road trip, so we listened to most of it on Audible. And I have to say that I really appreciate when authors read their own books on Audible because it really helps me to more to connect to your story. So that was a really great experience, being able to listen to you read your words. Well, thank you. I feel the same way. I love listening to authors read their own books, especially when there's some personal story involved. Yes. And I'll tell you that when I first put the book on at the beginning of our drive, my husband said, soulful simplicity. He's like, what does that mean? And I said, well, we're going to find out. (laughs) And we did once we read the book. But for someone that's just looking at your book and wants to know what it's about, can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by soulful simplicity? Sure. Well, I think about often about the differences between simplicity and minimalism, for instance. And then when I was writing this book, I really had to think about what a soulful simplicity meant to me. And I use the terms simplicity and minimalism interchangeably. I think sometimes the word minimalism has a little more, it it feels more extreme, but really they're the same. It just matters how you incorporate it into your life. 
And then a soulful simplicity, I think how I differentiate that is that it is heart-centered, heart-based, and it recognizes that the changes that we're making as we are simplifying our lives, the most important ones are happening on the inside and not necessarily the visible ones that we can see, like our bookshelves and countertops. Right. So minimalism and simple living, I think very often I know for myself personally that it started from a very practical standpoint and it seemed like the sensible thing to do. I I could intellectualize it all, especially with slimming down on my kids' toys. I mean, my background is in child development, so I know that when kids have fewer choices, that they are more likely to engage longer and more appropriately with the toys that they have, and they're more likely to learn from those toys. So in my head, I could really justify a lot of those things. And then even when I moved to my wardrobe is that I'm going to spend less time in the morning and I'm going to have to make fewer decisions and I'm probably going to look better as a result. So it started very practically. Did you feel that way for yourself? Did, did minimalism and simple living start as a very practical solution? Sort of. I mean, the, the changes that I made in my life didn't start that way. In fact, they didn't really start with simplicity at all, but they, or I guess they did, but I didn't recognize that that was what was happening. Uh, so when I finally really started simplifying in terms of decluttering and making more space and time, that those practical steps really allowed me to go deeper inward and recognize what the, the real benefits were. Um, even though, I mean, gosh, clean countertops are a great benefit. I love walking into my home after a long day and having everything feel calm and welcoming. But the real change was going on inside, you know, becoming less reactive, less busy, more attentive and present. Uh, so all of the changes kind of fueled each other, I suppose. And for you, a lot of these changes were really fueled by health. Can you tell us a little bit more about your story about health and how that led you to this type of lifestyle? Sure. In 2006, after months and months of feeling terrible with exhaustion, debilitating vertigo, tingling in my hands and face, and all kinds of other weird symptoms, I was visiting lots of different doctors and trying to figure out what was wrong, just wanting that quick fix. And in July of 2006, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And that was my big wake-up call, the one that I could not ignore, and also the, the catalyst for the changes that I made because I really wanted to find a way to live well with MS. Now, I have done quite a bit of reading about autoimmune disease. I do have an mm -hmm. autoimmune disease myself, and multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disease. Is that right? It is. And from what I've read, I want to say, and I don't know the statistics for sure, but it's something around 30 to 40% co-occur. So if you have one, you're likely to get another. And is that, have you heard that before? I'm not really familiar with that. Okay. So but I, I could imagine that's true. And, and so for me, that's sort of been in my mind that my condition doesn't really affect my day-to-day -day health at this point. But I know that autoimmune disease is so much impacted by stress and by lifestyle and that I hope that by really keeping my stress under wraps and living a calm life that I hopefully will 
will impact my health. And that's something that you found that your lifestyle has really had a positive effect on your health. Is that true? 100%. And it's not just me that thinks that, but my neurologist as well and my family can certainly attest to that. Uh, I'm definitely a healthier, happier human by living with less stuff, obligation, stress, worry, guilt, all of the, the things that were weighing me down. Um, all of that letting go has contributed to more of the good things, especially health. In your book, you I feel like you started off talking about with some practical tips about how to get started down the simpler lifestyle and down this path. And as you moved forward, you went more from the how to the why. And I love that because I feel like there are a lot of guides out there as to how to simplify. And I know that's something that my audience is always looking to me for. They're always looking for how do you organize this and how do you manage this? And often we can get really caught up in the how and don't spend enough time looking at the why. Agreed. I think that asking that question, how is often just a way to procrastinate. We want to find the perfect way to get started. So we keep researching and trying to sort out, you know, what is the best first step when in reality, there is no best first step. If you're going to have a major overhaul on your home and your life, it doesn't matter where you start. I think it's important to start where you're most curious or most interested or where you think things are going to make the biggest difference. But all in all, you're going to end up making all the changes anyway. It's just a matter of time. So start anywhere and use that momentum and inspiration you get from that one change to do the next thing. I think we all understand on a, a head level, on a brain level, the mechanics. Like We all know how to put stuff in a box and bring it to the donation center. But until we understand it on a heart level, it's going to sit in the trunk or sit on the counter or we're going to keep holding on. But once we make that connection, which can come from just taking action, once we make that connection with our heart, the letting go becomes so much easier. It's funny that you call decluttering procrastination sometimes because I absolutely experienced that when I was about to start my dissertation. I somehow got this overwhelming wave that I needed to declutter every single aspect of my house, every closet, every cupboard, and I couldn't rest and I couldn't start on this project until I did that. And I very much think it was a way of procrastinating because I had, it was sort of this looming task over me and I decided to prioritize another task that might have been less important at that time, but it, it served its own purpose. For sure. I think I've done that too. I probably have done it very recently. I know through the course of writing the book as well, like there would be times where it would get challenging and I would think, I better go or like straighten out my closet or clean up the kitchen or do something else because this is too hard right now. And sometimes that is serving a positive purpose as well, giving us this much needed rest and sort of freeing our minds from something that we are sort of blanking out and stalling on. Do you feel like doing those things sort of gives you some well-needed procrastination sometimes? For sure it does. Uh, although I really try to recognize it now and make sure that, 
you know, how, how might be a better way to procrastinate? You know, maybe I could jump on my yoga mat, for instance, or take a walk. I don't have to always be productive in the sense of cleaning something up or making strides towards a simpler life, for instance, to, to make that procrastination worthwhile. You know, how might I contribute to my body or my mind or something like that when I'm in the, just in that uncomfortable time of either hard work or a little bit of a block or whatever it is, how can I use that time to fuel myself versus, you know, keep expending energy that might not lead to more energy that didn't really come out right. But I think, you know what I mean by that. (laughs) That makes sense. Finding other options because I think so much of the time we feel like we need to be productive all the time. And I noticed this for myself that I have to tell myself to sit down, especially having two small kids that there really is always something that I could be doing. And Sometimes I resist the need to sit down and to rest, but it's so rest does so much for us and it does so much for our bodies and for our minds. Agreed so much. And you're right. It is, it's a challenge because we could always be getting things done. And I think there's a part of all of us that measure who we are by what we accomplish. So on some level at the end of the day, we measure how successful we were or how good a day it was by how much we got done. When, if we can shift that measuring system a little bit, I think we'll find that taking that time, like you said, to rest or just sit down or take a walk really benefits us in ways we can't even imagine. You're right. And so many of us, myself included, do define our days by how many boxes we can check. And in your book, you talk a little bit about the to-do list. And you approach yours sort of similar as I do mine. I'll tell you just quickly how I how I utilize my to-do list. And if you could share yours as well, that would be great. I just have, I have two I use Evernote to manage most of my things. And I have two notes on Evernote. I have the today list and the not today list. And my not today list is pretty long and I'm always adding things to it, but I rarely look at it. Well, I look at it at the end of every day, just sort of glance at it. But the today list is really, really short and it's really approachable. And it's things that I know that I can get done today and I can feel good about and things that absolutely need to get done. And I do those things. And when I finish that list, and I do finish that list every day, I feel like I've accomplished something. I feel like I have been productive. And I don't feel like I have all these things hanging over my head because that not today list is so long. I might not, I might not ever finish it, especially not today. So is that, does that sort of similar as to how you run yours? Is that right? Very, yes. I try to have my a handful of priorities for each day. And then, like you said, another kind of longer list that just all the things. So if it's on my mind, I might write it down and then I'll take another look at the list. And half the time I end up getting rid of things that I put down, but at least it's not something I'm chewing on during the day and thinking about and wondering about because I've written it down. Um, I do mine on paper in kind of a, a bullet journal format only because I'm terrible at the the digital calendaring and to-do list things. I always end up like typing in new event and then not putting what it is. And then the day comes and I'm like, wait, what's the new event here that I'm supposed to be doing? <laughs> I, I've so had if that I'm, as well. <laughs> yeah. But if I'm handwriting it, I find I can be a little more specific and, 
and really think about, you know, is this meaningful to me or not? And the, the digital stuff takes that away, at least for me. And I know some people really rely on that, um, to keep themselves in check and it's how they do it. And I think that's fantastic. But for me, it works much better on paper. Uh, and then I really try not to measure the day based on what I got done or I didn't get done. I try to think about how well I did the things that I did and how I treated myself and the people around me. And it's a practice. I mean, I'd love to say that that comes naturally every day, but it really is something that I have to come back to every day and remind myself like what, what does matter today? Yeah, those, it's good. You got those things done, but what really mattered today? What was important? You're right. Because on my today list, even the one that I use actively every day, that short list, I never put on there things like sit down and read a book with my son or make eye contact with my daughter. And those are the things that do really matter. And they're things that we take for granted. And they're things we don't sort of give ourselves credit for when we do do them. So when we accomplish, when we have a day where we're present and we're happy and joyful, we don't necessarily check any boxes because most of us, I know myself, I don't really, those aren't sort of things that I write down or account for. Sure. So there was a story that I really loved in your book and it, you talked about your mother and she had a collection of records of your uncles. Could you tell us that story? Yeah, I'd love to. I really, the story is so clear for me, um, even though it's happened a couple of years ago, but my parents live in Italy now. And when they, they had moved to Italy and they were back here for a visit and my uncle, my mom's brother, had Down syndrome and had passed away a couple of years before this all had happened. And he collected record albums. And I mean, we don't really use albums that frequently anymore now that everything is digital, but he collected albums. And even though he couldn't read or um, really, you know, I don't think that he probably was academically above a, a kindergartner or first grade level, um, maybe even less than that intellectually. But he had this amazing sorting system for his albums. And if you asked him to pull one up, he could go through his filing system, which no one would, but him could understand and pick it out for you in a second. And so when my mom was back visiting, she had all of my uncle's albums stored with a friend and she had to pick them up. And she was telling me that she was going to ship them to Italy where they live now, send them by FedEx. And there were hundreds of albums. And I couldn't believe that she was going to spend all that money to send these albums to Italy when they don't even have a record player. And I asked her about it and probably sounded a little... I don't know, cold or judgmental about it now that I'm thinking about it. And it really hurt her feelings. And she dismissed it, dismissed my objections and changed the subject. And later that day or the next day when I got home, I realized how, A, it wasn't up to me to tell my mom what stuff she should have or not have in her life. And also those albums weren't albums to her. They were her brother. They represented her connection to him his life. And she wasn't ready to let go. And I should support that. I shouldn't be the one telling her what to do. And I apologized to her 
And I don't remember if it was right away or a few weeks later, but I remember getting together with her and a friend and I overheard the friend saying to her, I just want to thank you, Nancy, for those albums. They're really amazing. We really enjoy them. And my mom seemed so happy that she found a positive place to give the albums, but also uh, happy that I think she felt satisfied or happy that she didn't bring them to Italy either, but she had to do that on her own time. It wasn't up to me to, to judge or tell her when was right for her. I love that story for two reasons. I think that it resonates with me because you speak a lot about letting go of sentimental things. And I know that that can be really hard, but also the relationship piece and that when you change your lifestyle and when you change the way that you live, it does impact your relationships. So, and I found that in, in my relationships as my goals and my values change that the people around me aren't necessarily having those same changes. And I'm trying to be more aware of that. And I'd love to hear from you on your experience with this sort of situation within your relationships. Yeah, well, I think it changes our relationships in so many ways, like the way you're describing where we might be, you know, progressing on a different pace or in a completely different direction. And I think that happens in all areas of life, not just simplicity. So one thing I think we have to do is because we're the ones simplifying, because we're the ones getting to the heart of the matter, we can really slow down and decide how we want to move forward in these relationships and how we are going to treat the people in our lives who are on a different path. And kind of like the, the album story, like I want to have a relationship with my mom. I don't want to be judging her for how she wants to live her life. So it's really up to me to not try to change her, but try to change the way I act around her when it comes to things like that. Absolutely. And I think sometimes even when we're trying really hard not to be judgmental, that having a different lifestyle can sort of be sort of unconsciously judgmental in a way. And here's an example of that. I had a friend come over this summer and her car, she has two small children. Her car was full of stuff. And when she pulled into the driveway, she said to me, I'm so embarrassed about all of the stuff in my car. You would be horrified. And I felt sad for a moment because I thought, have I ever said or done anything that would lead her to believe that she should be embarrassed because I live a different lifestyle, because I have certainly had a very messy car for many, many years in my life. And I know what, what it feels like to have a messy car. And I don't judge that at all. But it, it sort of felt like because I have a clean car, I'm in a, in a way she's assuming that I'm going to be judging her messy car. Have you had experiences like that? Definitely, I have. Uh, I mean, especially where, you know, we're both pretty open about our lifestyles online. And talk about it all the time. People that are close to me, of course, feel like that and, and might even say things like, Oh, you, you know, the, the house is a mess or, but if I think about it, we did that before too, with each other, um, close friends and family. And it's not, it's, I don't know. I think it's just part of it. And I, all I can do is reassure people that, no, I'm not judging. I love you. I'm just glad we can spend time together and, um, but I also know that sometimes my lifestyle motivates change in other people, not 
by me telling them to change just by me changing and vice versa. You know, if a friend is doing a new exercise program or has joined a new yoga studio or something like that and is raving about it and really kind of walking the walk, that's enticing to me. And I, I try to remember that like the, if, if you want to inspire change, just keep your eyes on your own paper and change yourself. And that is inspiring in itself. Absolutely. And I feel like the older that I get and the further I get along into my journey as a mother, the more I want to surround myself with people who are inspiring me and making positive changes. And I'm hoping that I can be that person for others as well. Um, But I see those around me, like my best friend and her husband in the past year have taken on an amazing fitness journey and lost a lot of weight and have become so much healthier and it's been really inspiring to my husband and I who have, you know, we had a, a, a transitional year with moving and haven't had as much time to prioritize ourselves. But I love seeing friends and family on that journey to do better. Um, but one, one of the lines in your book that resonated with me, and I can't quote you verbatim, but you had mentioned that the woman, had you, had you looked at yourself 10 years ago, that you might have rolled your eyes at the woman that you are oh. today. And that, and I guess I'm sort of like, how do you deal with the eye rollers? And I think that, I mean, I know that they're there and I feel like even though I'm, I really am on a mission to be more calm and to be more present, I, there's part of me that still notices that and still wants to connect with those people that are rolling their eyes. Well, I think we're talking about a lot of different groups of people. So the people that are closest to me, like my core people, when we roll our eyes at each other, it's in, in good fun. And I'm perfectly fine with that and no problem. And then for the people who maybe don't know me so well and are doing the eye roll in a like whatever judgy way, I just don't really care. Uh, I don't really have time to entertain that or to justify my actions, nor am I interested in doing that. Um, However, those same eye rollers, and I know there have been plenty of eye rollers about, for instance, Project 333, you know, dressing with 33 items or less, um, because it seems kind of arbitrary, a little crazy. I get it. But those same eye rollers a year later are trying the challenge and finding the benefits. And I don't think to myself, oh, a year ago you were rolling your eyes and now here you are ready to make a change. I just love them up. Like I just don't want to hold on to any of that because I know those eye rolls have zero to do with me and everything to do with the person that's rolling their eyes. And hey, I'm a professional eye roller. I have (laughs) done my share of eye rolling. And when I come around, I realize, oh my gosh, that was all me and my fears and my stuff and my hangups and had nothing to do with the person or idea I was rolling my eyes at. Right. And it helps knowing that you probably were that person 10 years ago and that you've come so far and you've made so many positive changes in that time. Definitely. And I probably still, I mean, I'm sure that an idea will, will cross my mind that makes me roll my eyes in the next 24 hours. And I'm all right with that, as long as I'm willing to come around. 
Absolutely. Now we talk about the eye rollers that are close to you. And I, it's funny that you say that because uh, one of the things that you said in Soulful Simplicity was that you start conversations with, wouldn't it be crazy if, and I do that with my husband all the time (laughs) and he's constantly rolling his eyes at me. And it's funny that those things, but he comes around to them. It usually starts with, wouldn't it be crazy if, or I had a, I have this crazy idea and he rolls his eyes and then he's like, okay, all right, let's do it. And I feel so blessed to have a husband and a partner who is really is willing to walk on this journey with me and doesn't follow me blindly by any means. He asks plenty of questions, but he's open to these crazy ideas. And it sounds like you have that with your husband as well. I definitely do. Yeah, I, I have, a, we have a lot of those conversations and he's definitely more risk averse than I am, which is great because I have somebody to ask me questions and really dig deeper into these crazy ideas. But knowing that we're both open means that we can still keep coming to the table with them. And it makes life really exciting. It makes our relationship very strong. And I can also take it when one of my crazy ideas is genuinely like, I'm off my rocker crazy (laughs) and we can, we can leave it (laughs) in the past. Yes. And I feel like I have those ideas pretty frequently as well. Sometimes I will sort of throw out the idea of living in a tiny home and my husband is just like, absolutely not. (laughs) will not entertain (laughs) that on any level. And I feel like maybe not now with two small children, but maybe someday we can. And when we made our move, we, and you talk about your move in your book, you downsized and we sort of moved to a same size house. And I already feel like I find myself sort of wishing that we had scaled back on the space in our home. And we're here now for the next few years, at least. I'm not sure what our future will bring us. But how have you experienced, Did you, you went down from 2,000 square feet to how many square feet now, roughly? So initially, we went from 2,000 square feet plus a storage shed in the backyard to uh, 750 square feet with no storage at all. And now we're in about 900 square feet. So we moved this summer actually into a little bit of a, a, a larger space from 750 to 900, not because we wanted more space. The 750 was plenty of space, but we just wanted a different um, layout. Okay. And do you feel like that's been a good fit for you, the, the space that you have? Very good. I really enjoy it. So Courtney, your daughter is in college now. Is that right? She graduated in May. Oh, how exciting. Yeah. That's great. So she, I'm curious about how you handle sentimental things with her. And I have a lot of readers and listeners who sort of fret over not spending enough time record keeping of their children, of the childhood of their children their children's early years, I guess I would call it. Sure. And I I don't do a good job of it, I would say. When I say I don't do a good job of it, I certainly don't print out photo books on any regular basis, nor do I keep a written journal of all the cute things that they say. And I feel at peace with it. I feel like when I don't do those things, it frees up time for me to really be present with my kids. And I'm wondering if fast forward 15, 20 years when my kids are in college, if I'm going to regret that, or if I'm going to be wishing and wistfully thinking that I had those things, what's been your experience with keeping things from your daughter's childhood? Well, less, less isn't nothing. So I have held on to a few things that I will 
give to her and let her decide if she wants them or not. Um, but I let go of most of it and I wasn't a great record keeper either. Uh, I did a lot of photography, but no like organized digital photo books or anything like that. Uh, and I don't regret it for a minute because every day my daughter and I are creating more memories and having more amazing moments and she's 22. So yes, uh, two is different than 22 and I remember the twos and I enjoy the 22s just as much as if, if not more. Uh, and I don't pine away for those days or, or even those moments, even though I'm thrilled when they cross my mind and bring a smile to my face. Um, I don't need a hundred things to remind me that it happened. I love the Walt Whitman quote, in the end, we were together. I forget the rest. Are you familiar with that quote? Yes, I just actually, why do I, maybe, I don't know why, but I think I either just shared it or just saw it or something. And I love that as well. And Beautiful. It, it just makes me think about, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the records that we keep or the photos that we have organized or disorganized, that what's really happening is that every day, every second that we're spending with our loved ones, we're building a relationship with them, whether we realize it or not. And the way that we spend our days really results in that relationship that comes out of it. And whether or not we did something or didn't do something during the time when we were together, that all those details sort of fade away as our children grow and as our lives pass. They do, or the, or our children, you know, they remember in completely different ways than we do. You know, they have their own set of, of memories and, and what's important to them. So I think it's just our job to keep showing up, just keep showing up for them. Courtney, this has been so great. Thank you so much for taking some time to chat today. I feel like I have a whole list of things that I would love to pick your brain on and maybe I can have you back on again another time. But I really enjoyed Soulful Simplicity and I think that it was a wonderful solution. I've read so much recently about how when it comes to simple living and minimalism and I think really getting at the root of the why has been such a wonderful step for myself in this journey and I think for anyone that reads your book as well. Well, thank you. I really appreciate our conversation and hope we do get to talk again soon. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you're interested in learning more about Courtney's work, I'm going to put a few links for you in the show notes at simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 89. I encourage you to check out Courtney's project 333, which is her simple plan for starting a capsule wardrobe. She also offers an amazing course, a year-long course into simple living, which is called, very aptly, A Simple Year. She is also on an exciting book tour in 15 cities across the U.S., and I will be joining in the New York location on January 15th. I would love to see you there. And if she's going to be in one of your cities, I highly recommend grabbing a ticket. You can find more about these resources and events at bemorewithless.com. Thanks for tuning in.